Well, as always, it is such a privilege to speak to you tonight from God's holy word. And I'm especially excited to delve into this topic of unity. The Lord's been thrilling my own soul and answering my own questions as I've studied this week. And I'm really excited to share just a little bit about what Scripture has to say about this topic of unity. Now, as Pastor Brody mentioned this morning, this chapter in the book precedes the chapter on deference that we learned about last week. Pastor Jeff spoke to us on the need to defer to one another in love. And you can think of unity, our topic, as the goal. That's what we're trying to promote when we defer our desires for what's best in the church. And so I think that's how the two relate. Unity is the goal, and then deference, what we learned last week, is how we achieve that goal. We defer when we differ. So let's begin tonight before we delve into Scripture with just some time in prayer before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful tonight to be a part of this, this organism that you have called the church. As we're going to see tonight, it is a, an incredible time in salvation history to belong to what Paul calls one new man, Jew and Gentile. Thank you that your cross has created the unity that we seek to preserve. You've achieved what no man could ever do. And so as a church, though we are diverse, many members with different preferences, we look to you, Lord Jesus, tonight. We want to learn from you. We want to be motivated and encouraged to be a unifying force in this church. And Father, you know where we, where we are doing well in this area. You are pleased as members defer what they want, preferences, to what's best for the church. You're pleased as we seek to submit to our elders. And Father, you know our hearts and you know where I struggle in this area and you know where we struggle as a church. So I pray that as you speak to us tonight through your word, that you would um, expose us by your great grace that we may repent and turn and become more conformed to the image of your Son, more devoted to unity. That's what I pray for myself. That's what I pray for our church. Help us to that end tonight. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. And so the title of my message tonight is I Will Unify. And it's an affirmation. A resolution. And so that's the goal of my message tonight, that after we meditate on Scripture together, I want us all to leave more resolved than ever to be a unifying force in the body of Christ. And so to that end, tonight we're going to answer four fundamental questions about unity. Four fundamental questions about unity. And the first question that's absolutely necessary if we're going to pursue this grand and glorious goal, is what exactly is unity? So when the Scriptures talk about it, what, what do the Scriptures mean 
when it talks about unity. What are we after? So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be in, I think, two different passages of Scripture tonight. Acts chapter 4. Now, at this point in Acts, the apostles are still testifying to the resurrection in Jerusalem. Peter has preached twice. About 5,000 people plus have repented and believed in Jesus. Then in chapter 4, they were arrested by unbelieving Jewish leadership. Then they were questioned and ultimately let go. Now, after this preaching, this arrest, and this release of the apostles, Christ has created His church. And listen to how Luke summarizes the church that the Spirit's created in chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to Him was His own, but they had everything in common. So how does Luke describe the concept of unity here? He says they were of one heart and one soul. So when Luke says heart, he doesn't mean they simply had the same emotions. That's how I tend to read it initially. He means that they thought the same kinds of things. Their desires were unified. Their values lined up. The early church experienced this unity at the most profound level humanly possible, at their heart level and at the soul level of this, of this group. This unity, Luke says, also spilled out into their material possessions, didn't it? They shared everything. There wasn't a needy soul among them. And so Luke describes the concept of unity as one heart and one soul. But he's not the only one who talks about unity in these kinds of terms. You don't have to turn there, but in Philippians 1.27, Paul adds a few more terms to the mix. He wants to hear that the church is, quote, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There's a, a sweet camaraderie in unity. We stand shoulder to shoulder. We strive in the same direction. Just a few verses later, he encourages them to complete his joy, quote, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In chapter 4 of the same letter, Philippians, he gets personal. (laughs) He says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord, literally, to think the same thing in the Lord. Imagine being those two ladies. The way the text reads, it's almost as though he addresses one lady. I I entreat this one, and I entreat this one. He repeats the verb, to agree in the Lord. But to simply say that unity is oneness doesn't quite go far enough. Yes, we're to be one in spirit and mind and love and direction, but it doesn't go quite far enough. To be unified, if we were to kind of see it in, the, in its context, means to be unified around something or someone. Just think this through. 
Nations, even enemies, will form alliances. They'll unify for a common cause. Complete, complete this phrase. Nothing unifies like a common enemy, right? So, who does the church rally around? It rallies around the Lord Jesus Christ. Or, if we put it another way, the church is devoted to the apostles' doctrine. That's what the way Luke puts it in Acts 2.42. So, we rally around Scripture as expressed and interpreted by the apostles. Nothing more and nothing less. Not preferences or opinions, or as we're going to see, even the Mosaic law. We rally around nothing but around Jesus, His gospel, His commands, and His kingdom. And so what is unity? First question, to put it simply, unity is oneness. Oneness around the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's, To be unified is to think, to desire, and to act as one person. To think, desire, and to act as one person. And who are we modeling? We're modeling the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've just gone over a few texts about unity, but there are so many more in Scripture. In addition to Luke and Paul... John includes several discourses by Jesus in his gospel about unity. Peter also talks about the topic in one of his letters. And unity is very important to Jesus and to the New Testament authors. So that leads us to our second question. Why is unity such a big deal in the New Testament? Why is it such an important topic? Now, I think it's best to answer this question with two reasons. One's practical and one's theological. We've got a practical reason and a theological reason. Why is unity such a big deal? Well, the practical reason is that the New Testament writers emphasized unity because the church struggled with it. The first century church struggled with unity. Believing Jews had a really, really, really tough time with Gentiles sharing in the Spirit and being brought into the church. It was hard for them. For hundreds, even thousands of years, the Jews were commanded by the law of Moses to live separate from the Gentiles. What's more, because they had been oppressed by the Gentiles, they nursed hatred for them. And they wanted to see God's judgment come upon them, especially the Romans. Many were blinded by self-righteousness and pride thinking that they'd somehow merited God's favor by obeying the law, or that they had a special privilege by being children of Abraham, literally descendants of him. When Paul and others turned to the Gentiles in the book of Acts, with the good news of the gospel, many Jews lose their minds with jealousy. But even those Jews who believed the gospel and affirmed that the Gentiles should be included, they still struggled with a certain level of hostility toward the Gentiles, didn't they? Think of one major example. The Apostle Peter. This temptation was so strong that even he had to repent of preferring Jews over Gentiles. So the New Testament authors, they wrote a lot about unity. They were inspired to write about unity because the church struggled to be unified around Jesus instead of the law of Moses. That's the practical reason why I think the New Testament talks so much about this topic. 
But then the theological reason that unity is such a big deal is because it's one of the purposes for which Christ died. Unity, what we're after, is one of the purposes for which Christ died. It's one of the very goals of Jesus' crucifixion. And the authors of Scripture affirm that the death of Jesus, don't miss this, the death of Jesus created the church. His death created the one new man from the two groups of Jew and Gentile. Now before you just take my word for this, let's go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in Paul's letter to the Ephesians for the rest of our time tonight. Ephesians chapter 2. In this letter, one of Paul's purposes, one of them, is to foster unity and love in Ephesus between the two groups, between Jews and Gentiles, believing Jews and Gentiles. So look in 2.11 and think about those two reasons I gave you, the practical and the theological reason. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, from the citizenship of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So initially he exhorts them to remember this. Remember how far you were from any kind of hope in God, from the people of Israel, from any kind of covenantal promise. You didn't have any of that. Remember. Now look at the contrast. But now, in Christ Jesus... You, who were once far off, have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. Now, here's where we're going to key in on, verses 14 and following. For he himself, how is this possible? How is it possible for Gentiles to be brought near? For he himself, Jesus, is our peace. He is the way that peace happens. And now look at the descriptions. Paul goes on to describe Jesus, who has made us both, that's both Jew and Gentile, made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So, what does that mean? What is he saying? He says that Jesus is our peace. And that He's brought us together, brought these two different, opposed, even hostile groups, Jew and Gentile, together by means of His death, by the blood of Christ, He says. And He's made us one, He says, and He has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. We could render this, he's broken down in his flesh, the, the wall of division, the hostility. See what I'm saying? The wall of division, which is the hostility. 
So think about this. The hostility that, that came about from the law of Moses as it was misapplied and the, the Jews began to be angry and resentful of the Gentiles, began to hate them, that hostility began to grow out of their separateness from them. The pride began to set in. There was a hostility. There was a wall of division between them. And it was hostile. And it says that Christ broke that down in His flesh. How did He do it? Verse 15 tells us, by abolishing, or we could say it like this, by rendering obsolete the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances. So how did He do it? By rendering obsolete the Mosaic law. The law, which misapplied, led to hostility, Christ rendered obsolete. So He took the whole system and set it aside by His very death and resurrection. Now what's the purpose? Why did He do this? What was His goal? Look in the middle of verse 15. That He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So Jesus' goal is to create this one new man. One of Jesus' purposes in rendering the law obsolete through His death was to bridge the second greatest chasm in all of human history. The chasm between Jew and Gentile. Listen to that language. He did it with the goal of creating from the two distinct hostile and opposed groups one new man in place of the two. We're unified in Jesus. We're unified around Jesus and through Jesus. That's how us as Gentiles can be unified with Jews. And I know we don't struggle with that as much right now, but hang with me. That's why Paul can say in Galatians 3.28 that there is neither Jew nor Greek. Not because the racial distinctions have completely fallen away. I'm still an American. I'm a Gentile. I'm not Jewish. I still maintain my ethnic identity. But in Christ, these things have fallen away. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and no female, for all, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. So as we often say, the ground is level at the foot of the cross in the most profound sense. Jesus, by His death and His resurrection, has created entrance into this new humanity. The new creation, He says, of which both Jew and Gentile share equally. That's a glorious stage in salvation history, isn't it? We as Gentiles get to participate fully in all of the promises. And so that's the, the, the second greatest chasm that he's, that he's breached. But look where Paul keeps going. Not only does he breach the, the second greatest gap, the gap between Jew and Gentile, but he also bridges the greatest gap between all of humanity and God. Look at verse 16. And the second goal, that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What does he mean? He's taking the two groups, Jew and Gentile, in one body now, and his death has reconciled them to God. There was hostility not just between Jew and Gentile, but between man and God. 
And his atonement was so significant that he killed the hostility between man and God. This is profound and it lays the foundation for Christian unity. So let's go back to our second question. Why is unity such a big deal? Well, it's incredibly important because this unity was Jesus' goal in His death. He created unity between Jew and Gentile and unity between humanity and God by His very death. A unified church is the very purpose, of, is the very purpose God accomplished in the atonement. That's, that's why Paul in other places warns against doing anything that undermines this goal of God. You see that? Paul warns in other texts not to do anything that undermines the unity of the church. Listen to what he says in, to the Corinthians who were full of divisions. He says, If anyone destroys God's temple, the church, uh, he divides it, destroys it by dividing it, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And so, since Christ died to unify us, and since it's one of the very goals for us, we need to ask our third question. How do I promote the unity of the church? How do I promote the unity of the church? That's the message. That's the title of the message. I will unify. So let's get practical. How do we do that, Paul? And thankfully, this is exactly where Paul goes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. So turn the page and take a look. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So what does that look like? Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Hear our unity language? There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You hear the point he's making? One God. So what do we do? How do we promote the unity of the church. Well, this text outlines it for us, and I'm going to walk it through and then summarize it sort of in two principles. So Paul, at this point in, this, in, this, in his letter, after all of the theology he's taught him about what Christ has done and the significance, how they've been resurrected from the dead spiritually, been given new life, how they've been chosen by God to be participants in this glorious new covenant. I mean, it is... I studied the first part of Ephesians this week in preparation for the message, and I was real by the glory that um, we find in those first chapters. And then he turns the corner in chapter 4 and he begins to apply or begins to give us implications of what it means for the church to live in light of what he's just said. We've got to walk worthy or in balance with this glorious calling that God's called us to. He's called us to salvation. He's called us to the church. He's forgiven us. And so we have to walk worthy of that. In the remaining verses, even the rest of the chapter, or the rest of the, the book of Ephesians, kind of details what that looks like. 
So he says, he gives some modifying phrases in verse 2. What does it look like? With all humility and gentleness, with patience. And then he gives some, some phrases here, some verbs. Bearing with one another in love. In verse 3, eager, being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. That's what it looks like to walk worthy of the calling, at least one aspect of it. And so the way these are laid out is the first prepositional phrase. I'm getting technical, so hang with me, okay? This first prepositional phrase in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, it parallels the last verb, the last participle, in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So what, what must precede being eager to maintain unity and the bond of peace? It, humility and patience. I mean, I'm sorry, humility and gentleness must precede that. It's the attitude that we take into bearing with one another, or I'm sorry, with being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So the first prepositional phrase and the last participle go together. And then the middle two go together. With patience, he says, bearing with one another in love. Do you see how patience and bearing up with one another are related? Paul is linking these two. It's called a chiasm. It's the way he lays it out. And this is significant. And I'm just going to summarize these. I'm going to take all those together. So the first and the last one and the middle two together. I'm going to make them into some summaries. So how do I promote the unity of the church? First... I must humbly and fiercely guard unity. I must humbly, with all humility and gentleness, I must humbly and fiercely guard unity. So let's, let's unpack this. We must be humble and gentle as we seek to maintain this unity. Think about that. What does it take to maintain or guard unity? It means we must actually arrive at unity around Jesus. We've got to get there. It means we've got to admit our faults and forgive each other. It means that we must discuss our differences and try to figure out what's preference and what's biblical. It means we must seek to understand each other when we disagree. And in the end, we've got to unify around Jesus. Now, can you imagine trying to do this, maybe you have, without humility and gentleness? Think about in, at, at home or any of those, in any of those circumstances. You've seen it happen, right. Imagine trying to, to arrive at unity with so many differences of opinion without humility and gentleness. Humility says there's a very good chance I could be seeing this the wrong way. So please correct me if I am. It says, if I've done anything to offend you, please forgive me. It's self-skeptical. Humility spills over into a gentle spirit. We don't bark at each other or make demands at one another. That's not gentleness. That would work against even the most courageous attempts at unity. We have to humbly, humbly guard unity. But, 
we must also ferociously guard unity. Now, why do I say that? Because the word Paul uses, he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, has zeal at its heart. There's a zealousness, an earnestness about it. It's eager. It's even ferocious. That stands out more to us. It's ferocious to guard the unity that the Spirit has produced in the church. Now, this was really probably one of the most convicting parts of my study to me personally. I just had to ask myself, am I ferocious? Am I zealous to maintain unity at TBC? Do you and I, do we graciously put down gossip when it springs up? Do we speak truth with others rather than perpetuating rumors? How easy is it to do that? I'm not above you guys. But that's not being very eager, very zealous, or very ferocious in maintaining unity, is it? We're not guarding it. So this means that we, you and I, we have to prize unity like God prizes it. And I just, quite frankly, I don't, or I didn't, this week. I had let it, I had devalued it in my mind. Okay, it just, but the Lord used this week's study to really promote this in my own heart and, and lift it high. It means that we must believe the warnings about what God will do to those who seek to destroy the unity that He's created in the church. So is this unity valuable to you? Or does what you want matter more than, what, more than the unity of Christ's bride? So let us with Jesus and the New Testament authors see the beauty, the beauty of unity. Because a unified church brings incredible, incredible glory to God. How else could so many diverse people get along as one person? <laughs> only by the work of God. But it's, it's, only by, it's only by God's work in His Spirit. And so that's the first principle. We must humbly and zealously guard it. And second, we must patiently and lovingly, hear this, put up with each other. We must patiently and lovingly put up with each other. That's what Paul says here. (laughs) I absolutely love how realistic the New Testament is. Do you realize that Paul presupposes that you and I will sin against each other in the church? He presupposes that. Not only will we sin, but God saves people from every demographic, from every background and walk of life. We come into the church with so many differences and preferences and ideas of how things should be based on our backgrounds alone. Paul presupposes this and says, yes, you are different, and yes, you will sin against each other, and yes, you will have different ideas. Therefore, you'd better go ahead and clothe yourselves with patience and learn to bear up, to put up with one another in love. He looks it in the face and gives us a direct exhortation. He says, be patient. This patience manifests itself in action. We're to bear with one another in love. In other words... In a spirit of love, we're to get along. We're to overlook faults. 
We're to forgive, seek reconciliation. And as coarse as it sounds, like we've said, simply just endure, put up with each other. Can you imagine how quickly unity would erode if we were not patient and we did not forgive? Think that through. If we weren't patient with one another and we did not forgive offenses with each other, think how quickly unity would just evaporate from the church. One of God's glorious goals for us is gone. Listen to this. Unresolved anger or hurt which over time turns to bitterness, and then it spews out in gossip. That's how it works. I know from experience. Unresolved anger or hurt, which over time turns to bitterness, and then it spews out in gossip, will kill, kill the unity of the church. We, you and I, we must resolve the offenses that we have with one another and bear with one another if we're going to be unified around Jesus. And this requires us to be both loving, he says, bear with one another in love, and patient. Now, if you have trouble, maybe like me sometimes, finding any love in your heart toward another believer, maybe it's wrong to you or it's different from you, spend some time meditating on how God loved you, even though you were a rebel and a flagrant offender. That's one of God's primary methods for producing this kind of love by the Spirit in your own heart. As you begin to grasp the gravity of what you were before the Lord Jesus saved you, how you were not seeking Him. Ephesians 2, there's a reason Paul details that out in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, is to humble the church and prepare them for what he's about to say about the Jew and Gentile relationship and unity. Everybody was dead. Everybody was marching to the beat of Satan's drum. All of us. None of us sought God, but God, it pleased Him in His great mercy to resurrect us spiritually from the dead, to give us new life, and then to seat us as previous rebels, not not just to save us. That would have been enough. Just forgive us of our sin. But then He exalts us, and we are seated, He says, with Christ in the heavenlies. We, you and I, we're we're not just saved. We're translated into the status... He says, we've been learning in Revelation, we're going to reign with Christ. We're sons and daughters of the King. It's incredible, incredible privilege. And it's, when we contrast it with what we were, that produces the love that we need. The Spirit uses that to produce the love that we need to share it with one another. It's like the parable that Jesus tells about the, the man who's forgiven lots and lots and lots of money by the King, and then he goes out and he strangles the man who's, who still owes him five bucks or whatever. It's a paraphrase. (laughs) But it's that principle, is that this man is so blind to what just happened to him that he goes out and strangles a man who who owes him chump change. And that's what we do with each other, is when we refuse to forgive, when we can't love each other, it's because we've missed, we've missed the love of God and how great it's been, how great He's been to us. And so... We must ferociously guard this and we must patiently and lovingly put up with each other. And so how do I promote this kind of unity? We do it by guarding it. We do it by 
by bearing with each other. Now, this brings us to our last question, which is, it gets a lot more practical at this point. This is a question I ask myself. Can we disagree and still be unified? Sounds like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? Can we disagree and still be unified? Now, the answer, I think, is yes with a very big asterisk, okay? (laughs) Yes with a big asterisk, meaning, let me explain what I mean. Remember back to the beginning of tonight. Unity is around a person. It's around Jesus and his teaching, the apostles' doctrine. In other words, we're unified around what Scripture clearly teaches. Biblical doctrine and practice are non-negotiables. We don't negotiate around those. We don't unify around people who deny the very tenets of the faith that we hold so dear. They deny the person and work of the Lord Jesus. They deny the doctrine of the apostles as given to us in the New Testament. We don't unify. But, if we're talking about preferences, the answer is yes. Can we disagree and still be unified? The answer is yes. What do we mean when we say preferences? Well, these are areas or convictions that aren't explicitly taught in Scripture. That's what a preference is. It's what you prefer. They go beyond what Scripture teaches. For example, the command to disciple our children is a non-negotiable. Throughout Scripture, train our children in the Lord. I say our, but you know what I mean. Corporately, I don't have children. We're to train our children in the Lord. That is a non-negotiable. We must be doing that. But nowhere does Scripture command our children to go to private Christian school or public school or homeschool. Scripture doesn't command that. So, are there principles that may compel someone to go to a Christian school? We hope so. Or to home educate or even to go to public school? Yeah, there are. But to mandate, get that, to mandate as law, as as Christ commands, that every person educate their child in the exact same way goes beyond Scripture. We would never say that. We can humbly and graciously disagree as to what we think is best. One's home education preferences doesn't have to mirror another home's any more than the church's programs must mirror every other single program of another church. You see what I'm saying? There's room for some disagreement and some difference. But when our disagreements are talked about with a spirit of humility, with zeal to be unified around Jesus, with a patient and loving attitude, and a willingness to put up with each other and our quirks and our preferences, unity will flourish. And that's our goal. And it's our goal because it's Christ's goal. Now, let's answer this question, can we disagree and still be unified, from another angle. Let's say our elders propose a budget, just for example, propose a budget, it's upcoming, and let's pretend that I absolutely disagree with something in it. Let's say there's, there is too much money going to the seminary book room, right? Too many theological books, I would never say that. Too many theological books, too much money going to that. I think more money needs to go to the children's ministry. Adam would amen me right now. 
I go to them, I bring up my issue, we talk humbly, and I understand where they're coming from. I'm, I'm fulfilling what Paul's commanded me to do here. And let's say I still disagree after we talk. I just see things differently. But I yield, and I do what Jeff said last week. I defer for the good of the church and for unity's sake. I want what Christ wants. I want to be unified, so I'm going to defer to the wisdom of the elders. Now, you'd better believe that when I go home, I'm still going to be tempted to convince my wife and my close friends how I think my idea for giving more money to children's ministry was better than their idea. That's going to be in my heart. The temptation is in my heart to do that very thing. But what's that doing? Is that unifying or sowing discord? That's sowing discord. Even at the smallest level, with my own wife, And I've had to repent of some of that. Now let's say that we're halfway through the year. We'll keep the scenario going, okay? We're halfway through the year, and then the children's ministry runs out of money. What will I be tempted to do at this point? Oh, buddy, you guessed it. Gossip and so more discord, right? Satan comes at us from every angle. Can you believe those elders? They should have listened to me. Those are the thoughts that I'm going to have to take captive and battle in that very moment. I know I'm being funny, but this is a serious note that these things don't unify the church. And it takes discipline and diligence and self-control and love and and a beautiful view of unity. It has to be so exalted to us, like it is in Scripture, that we exercise that kind of self-control at that level to maintain the unity of the Bride of Christ. It's hard, but the Spirit has so much power, and He's willing to do that among us if we will trust Scripture. And so, just to review, what is unity? It's a oneness around Christ. A oneness around Christ. It means that we think, we desire, and we act as one person as the Lord Himself. It's a lofty, lofty, lofty goal. But it's a goal that we must strive toward. Now, why is it a big deal? Because Jesus Himself died to create it. Think about arriving in heaven or at at His coming in the kingdom and He holds you accountable. And He died to create this unity and yet you were not diligent to pursue it. That's a trembling, scary thought. He died. Jesus, the Lord of the church, died to create this unity. And it's His goal, and it must be ours too. And so how do I promote the unity of the church? By humbly and zealously guarding it. So we've got to guard it. We don't create it. Christ has already created it. We guard it. We maintain it. We promote it. And by patiently just putting up with each other's differences. Patiently and lovingly putting up with each other's differences. And then finally, can we disagree and still be unified? Yes, with a big asterisk. As long as it's over preferences and it's done in love. If you can't do it in love, don't even talk about it. But it's healthy. Discussion in the church is healthy insofar as it's done in love. And so I hope that after hearing God's word tonight, 
They're not my thoughts. These are, these are Paul's thoughts. These are inspired words of Scripture. That you will affirm with me the title of this sermon. I will, I will unify. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we beg you to accomplish this among us by your Spirit. We have no power, no self-control, no ability to curb our evil tongue apart from the truth being energized by your Spirit and being accessed by faith in our hearts. So we pray that you would do that very work in us and among us um, as you have already been doing in this church. And we pray that you would continue, that we would be renewed in our minds tonight and renewed in our spirits to pursue it. It's in Christ's name we pray.